0: Well, hey, good morning, church. How are we doing? Good, good to see all of you. Do me a favor, take your Bibles and open them up into Ephesians 2. We are gonna be studying the book of Ephesians from now through Easter. And while you're turning there in your Bibles or in your phones to Ephesians, um, I want to start off this morning by asking you a question. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where it was very, very clear that people didn't want you somewhere? Have you ever really found yourself facing open hostility? Have you ever been there? Because if you have, it's pretty awful feeling, isn't it? Um, I remember my sophomore year um, in high school, I played soccer for the JV team at Grand Haven High School. And uh, our JV team that year, we were really, really good. Our record was like 15 and three. And we were one of those teams that every single game, we got better and better. And, And the problem was, is our varsity was not a very good team. They were under 500, they lost way more than they won, and they were having a really, really tough year. And I don't know if it still works this way in high school, but what happened was is the JV would play their games from like 5 to 6.30, and then the varsity would play their games from um, 7 to 8.30. So what would happen is, is the parents and the varsity team, as they were warming up and getting ready for their game, they'd have to watch the end of the JV game over and over and over again. And and we kept winning and winning and winning, and the varsity kept losing and losing and losing. In fact, varsity parents came up to us at the end of the season and said, I don't think our varsity team could beat your JV team. You guys are having a great year, we're terrible, and, and it caused some tension amongst the JV and varsity, and at the uh, end of the season, when the JV year ended, three players from JV got called up to varsity as underclassmen, myself and two other players, and uh, I remember vividly that first practice, practicing with the varsity, these are kids that are older than me, I don't, haven't played with them yet, I'm nervous, um, I got there, no one talked to the JV players. No one warmed up with the JV players in the scrimmages. No one would pass to us. It was very, very clear. They didn't like the JV players. They didn't want us there. And I remember in the first scrimmage we had, I was playing forward and I stole it from a defender and I hit a beautiful shot that went in the goal. And in that moment, not a player on the other team or my own team congratulated me. They all just turned around and started screaming at the goalie for allowing a JV player to score on him. And um, not only that, but our coach screwed up the process of registering us with the state so we weren't even allowed to play in the games. So the players wouldn't sit on the bus. They wanted with us on the bus. They wanted nothing to do with us. We couldn't play in the games and we just had to go to practices with guys that didn't want us there. It was awful. I was on the bench watching the games, just praying that we would lose. Like, Lord, help me get out of this situation. Like hostility, when you are facing it, is Awful And hostility is exactly what Paul is addressing in the second half of Ephesians 2. And church, here's what I'm going to say. This is one of the weekends where it's my job to love you enough to tell you the hard truth. This morning is going to be a morning that's going to make, I think, most of us uncomfortable. It's going to stretch us. I think what God wants to do through his word is beautiful, but it is going to absolutely confront an area in our culture and in the church that is very, very broken, and that is the issue of hostility and unity in Christ. So um, if you're ready, can you just help me up and tell me you're ready? Say, I'm ready. All right, let's get after it. Here's the big idea. It's this. It's that we need to confront and kill the hostility in our hearts towards others. We need to f- confront and kill the hostility in our hearts towards others. As people who have been reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus, there is no room and no excuse for us to live with hostility towards one another, regardless of our differences. Look at verse 11. Here's what Paul writes. So Paul is writing to a a Gentile church predominantly and he's saying, hey, you Gentiles, remember that that you were called the uncircumcision by the circumcision. And and here's what he's saying. He's saying that term uncircumcision, it was a derogatory term that the Jews would call the Gentiles. So the case study that we see here is hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles, The the, the Jews and the Gentiles hated each other. And the reason the Jews would call the Gentiles the uncircumcision, because circumcision was a mark for the Jewish people that their men did. And it was a distinguishing characteristic that showed that they were part of the family of God. So when they called the Gentiles the uncircumcision, what they're saying is, is you're not part of God's people you guys are unclean, you guys are unholy. It was a derogatory phrase that they would use. And Paul is saying the Gentiles used to be separated from the plan of God. Um, Commentators and historians say that there is really not a way that we as Americans can truly understand how much the Jews and Gentiles hated each other. Um, Jewish people believed that Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell that their role in existence was to live, to die, to go to hell, to be gassed, to keep the fire going. In fact, it was illegal to be, for a Jewish person to help a Gentile woman who was in labor because you would have been guilty of bringing in another heathen into the world. They hated each other. The Jews hated the Gentiles because they were unclean. They were occupying their God-given land and they were heathens. And the Gentiles hated the Jews because they were arrogant. They wouldn't assimilate into Roman culture and they were condescending. There was massive cultural issues between Jews and Gentiles. So what's the root issue? It's pride. The hostility came because of pride. And if you remember in Genesis 12, I'm gonna put that up on the screen. God calls Abraham and makes a promise when he calls the Israelites to be his people. He says this, he said, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Isn't that interesting that when God called the people of Israel to himself, the purpose was that Israel would be a blessing to the rest of the world? God's saying, I want you to be a people that will be a light to the world, that will show this is what it looks like to have a nation know their creator and follow God. So he gave them the law and he gave them the prophets and he set his presence with them in their temple so that they would be a light to the rest of the world. But that's not what happens. The Jews took that promise and that blessing and pride corrupted them. They developed the attitude of we are better than you. You are unclean. We are clean. You are far from God. We are holy. The very gift God gave them, they used it as ammo for hostility. In church, this is exactly how pride works. Tim Keller, uh, speaking on this passage, writes this. He says, God has addressed one of the main problems the human race has ever had, and the problem is hate. Our problem is that when God gives us good gifts, there is something in our hearts that elevates them to an absolute value. This causes us to look at everyone else who doesn't have what we have, and then we look down on them. It causes us to despise them. The good gift becomes the basis for hostility, This is particularly true in groups of people, races, cultures, classes of people. The way we get our identity, the way we define ourselves, the way we get our value or self-worth is by taking what is distinct and good about us, lifting it up and looking down on everyone else who doesn't have what we have. We get our identity by excluding others and looking down on others. This is the reason why the earth is red with human blood and has been for centuries. Right? So you see how this happened with the Jews, right? They got the commandments, they got the law, God was near to them, his presence was with them, and rather accepting that gift with humility, they elevated that about themselves and said, we have this because we're better than everyone else, and they used it to look down on others and create hostility. But listen, the Jews and the Gentiles, they're just the case study this morning, right? Right? The good news is for us, we have um, evolved way past hostility and there is no tension or hostility in our culture today, right? Like we're so far past this? I don't think so. I I think we are living in an age where hostility seems to be spiraling out of control. And I would argue that the root of that or the primary way way we see that play out is hostility in the political arena or the political spectrum, right? Right? David Brooks, he's a Christian author and a sociologist and a professor at Yale. He writes this, he says, over the last half century, we have turned politics from a practical way to solve common problems into a cultural arena to display resentments. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying right now, politics, it's not even primarily about how do we come together to solve issues? It's how can we show how much we hate the other side? It is about hostility and resentment. If you're ever looking to play a depressing game, I've got a great one for you. You ready for it? Um, Just turn on the news. I don't care what channel, it can be CNN, it can be Fox News, and here's the game you play. How long will it take for one side to say something nice about the other? No one ever wins. It's the never-ending game, and it is so depressing. I have talked with hundreds of people in this church over the last few years who are so discouraged and frustrated with the hostility in our country around politics. It's even dividing families. Like I've talked to people like, I don't know how to go home for Christmas because political issues are so divisive, and I'm terrified for what that's gonna look like with my family. It plays out in other arenas too. There's hostility between generations, All right, I'm 35 years old. That technically puts me on the old end of the millennial generation. Do I have any other millennials in the room? Can you raise your hand quick? Yeah, I see a bunch of you. Um, People love to kick millennials, don't they? Like I would argue millennial generation is the most made fun of generation in the history of America. You guys are so soft. You guys are snowflakes. You have no work ethic. You guys are the worst. I heard someone say this week, yeah, your generation would have never won World War II. It's like, wow, that hurts, right? Thanks for that. Um, And and here's the thing, millennials kick right back, right? One of my favorite millennial jokes right now, have you heard the phrase, okay, boomer, right? That's what young people say to old people who like can't figure out technology and can't understand the way the world works. There's this condescending term we use like, oh, okay, boomer, I get that you don't get it. Um, this, uh, right around this winter, right before Christmas, we were finishing up our worldview series. And if you remember, my dad and I ended the series by doing a Q&A weekend together. And so what that means is, is we had to travel between services together. And we have like a limited amount of time. We got about 20 minutes to get there. It takes about 12 minutes uh, to actually drive there. So there's about an eight minute cushion if everything goes right. So it's pretty tight. And my dad had gotten a new car and he's like, all right, Cal, I'll, I'll drive us between services. I'm like, okay. So we do the Q&A at the nine. We get in the, in the parking lot and we go to my dad's car and I go to open the door and the car's locked. And I go, dad, can you unlock the door? And he pulls out his key fob and he's pressing a button and the car won't unlock. I'm like, dad, unlock your door. And then all of a sudden he just like starts fumbling with it and like freezing. And he's like, oh, uh, I don't know how to unlock the door. I can't figure it out. And I'm like, this is my nightmare, right? And and like 30 seconds go by and I'm losing my mind. And I'm like, fine, you know what? I'm just gonna go back into the green room and I'm gonna get my own keys, we'll take my car. So I am running back into the church. Time is moving. I go walk through the door, Emo's there, our production guy, and he looks at me. He's like, Cal, what are you still doing here? And I'm like, my boomer dad can't figure out how to unlock his own car, right? Driving me crazy. There were for sure some jokes on the way between campuses. Our country has a brutal history with racial hostility. I don't have to get into that. Um, Here's a new one. Um, A little bit of hostility around vaccination statuses, right? Things we never would have thought 10 years ago would be a major force of hostility is overwhelming. You're even seeing national hostility with everything happening in Russia, in Ukraine. There is hostility everywhere you look. So what is the solution? Look at verse 13. It says, but now in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and in broken down his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinance that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. So making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Okay, here's what Paul's saying. The solution to our hostility is Jesus Christ himself. It's Jesus Look at verse 14. This is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. He says this, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. He says, listen, Jesus came and he fulfilled the law and he fulfilled the prophets. So now relationship and access to God is no longer found through national identity or works, but it is found through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is open to both the Jews and the Gentiles. He is fulfilling the promise he made to Abraham that through the Israelite people, all of the nations would be blessed. And then he says in verse 17, it says, and he came and he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. Those who were far off, he's talking about the Gentiles, which by the way is us. He's saying before Jesus, you had no access point to God. You didn't have the law. You didn't have the prophets. You didn't know what it meant to be a people of God. And he came and he brought peace. And he brought peace to those who were near. He's talking about the Jews. They had the law. They had the prophets. They had the temple. But they didn't have peace with God yet. And Jesus brought peace to both. The Gentiles' hope for salvation was the person and work of Jesus, the same for the Jews' So here's the question, how is Jesus the solution? Well, you need to understand this. Jesus fundamentally changes our identity and who we are, church. Look here, Christianity was never meant to be a part of who you are. It has to fundamentally change everything about you. It changes your hope, it changes your purpose, it changes how you view the world, it changes your joy, it changes who we are here's a question. How many of you guys have been on a a missions trip out of the country or overseas? Has anyone been on a mission trip? Raise your hand. Um, Yeah, a a bunch of us have. Here's the powerful thing about missions trips. It's not the project that you go and do. The lasting powerful part about missions trips is whether it's Kenya or Mexico or or, or Romania, um, it's that you get to sit and spend time with believers who, who live across the world. Their cultures could not be more different. Their lives could not be more different. And what you realize is they love Jesus just like you love Jesus. And they have a joy just like you have a joy. And what you realize is I have more in common with the follower of Christ in Kenya this morning than I do with my next door neighbor who doesn't know the Lord. Our worldview is the same. Our hope is the same. Our hope in eternity is the same. And what you realize is, is, man, the primary identity that I carry is that I am a Christian first. Church, I'm a Christian first. I'm a Michigander second. I am a Christian first. I am a conservative or liberal or moderate second. I'm a Christian first, I'm a millennial second. I'm a Christian first, I'm a Caucasian second. It becomes your primary identity. Look at verse 18. It says, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Okay, so here's our call. If our solution is Jesus, the call is unity amongst Christians. Look at the words that Paul is using to the Jews and the Gentiles. He calls them fellow citizens. He calls them members of the household of God. He says, you're a family. He says, you're being joined together. You're being built together. You're being brought and made into one. Paul is saying is that what Jesus is doing is he is taking people who have different pasts, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different cultures, different ways of viewing the world, and he is bringing peace between them under his gospel, under his kingdom, in his church, right? Think about it. Wouldn't it have been way easier for Paul to go into all of these cities and create two churches, create a Gentile church and create a Jewish church? They would have understood each other better. There would have been less bickering on what to wear or what food to eat or what festivals to follow. Like the easy thing for Paul would have been to create a Jewish community of Christians and a Gentile community. Would have made his life way easier, but that's not what he does. He he says the power of the cross, the power of Jesus is so great. What Jesus is doing is, is he is taking people who are very, very different from one another, and he is uniting them in to one community that loves each other because their identity is in Christ. Did you know that in the first few centuries of Christianity before um, Christianity was even legal in the Roman Empire? Um, in 350 AD, Constantine made Christianity the official religion of Rome. But before then, Christians were getting um, persecuted like crazy. They were being fed to the lions, they were being crucified. There was unbelievable persecution. One of the things that was so attractive about the movement of Christianity in that time was it was the only place in Roman society where Jews, Greeks, and people of different classes and ethnicities would love each other, care for each other, and do life with one another. You wouldn't find it anywhere else in Rome. People who were different coming together and caring and loving one another. It was in many ways the power behind the movement of Christianity in the early days. It was a foundational mark of the church. So can I ask a brutally honest question? Is that still the case today? Or is this something that we have lost in our culture and with our freedoms So here's what I've done. I've laid out the what in the passage. Now I wanna get really, really practical and, and answer this question. How do we defeat the hostility that lives in our heart towards others? Here's the first. It's only going to happen if there's a sincere desperation for and devotion to Jesus. I will only defeat the pride in my heart If I am sincerely devoted and desperate for Jesus, I I wanna share with you a little bit of my story. Um, I grew up in the church. My dad was an elder at my church growing up as far back as I can remember. I went to every service, every event, I was a church rat. And if you grow up in the church, here's what you're told you're told, man, it's really important, you should be reading your Bible. Right, If you've grown up in the church, I guarantee you heard that. Hey, you should really read your Bible. Well, for so long, my view of reading the Bible, all it was was cosmic homework. It was this task that I had to do. And if I didn't do it, it meant I wasn't a good Christian or it meant that that God didn't love me enough and I was somehow failing. And it was dry and it was drudgery and it was just a task. And I most of the time just didn't do it because I thought it was something that I had to do to earn God's love. Well, I just want to be so honest with you. At 35 years old, here's what I would say. There is a growing desperation in me. I just want to be near to Jesus. I am learning more and more in my heart and in my life that if I am not close to Jesus Christ, it's not homework to be in his word or to draw near to him. I'm so convinced that he is Lord and that his words lead to life that I am desperate to hear from him every single day because I know if I'm not near him, my pride will consume me. Uh, Taylor, last week in his message, he, he listed, here are the three enemies of the soul. There's the devil, the flesh, and the world. Church, you understand from the second you wake up, these things are at war with your heart constantly. Constantly that we are being pulled to to elevate ourselves and to live with pride and to make everything about us. And there are forces at work that are trying to keep us from being people who are desperate for and devoted to Jesus. And so here's the question. I've always been told, right? Paul uses the language, right? the, the, The Christian life, it's a war and it's a battle and we need to fight the good fight. And for so long, I didn't understand, what does it mean to actually engage in the fight? Here's how you engage. It is the spiritual disciplines. It is drawing near to God through his word. It's getting to a place in the morning where it's quiet and you pray and you say, Lord, fill me with your spirit and help me love others like you love them today. And I see some of you looking at me saying, Cal, what you're honestly saying is is the way this hostility problem is going to get better is if we all spend some time quietly praying and reading the Bible. Yes, that's what I'm saying. He's given us his word. The Bible says in James 4, God promises, when you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. Listen, if we are actually going to have the mind and heart that Jesus has towards others, we have to be close to him. If anyone in the universe had a right to hate and to be hostile, it was Jesus. And yet what do we see him do? We see him humbly sacrifice himself. We see him love. We see him engage with others who were his enemies. And Jesus in the gospels goes out of his way to hang out with everyone. He hangs out with the rich, he hangs out with the poor, he hangs out with the rulers, he hangs out with the slaves, he hangs out with the Jews, he hangs out with the Samaritans, the religious, the socially unacceptable. Anyone who believes that Jesus doesn't call us to leave our comfort zone, to engage with people who are different than us or think differently than us, fundamentally doesn't understand the ministry of Jesus. But my heart left to itself is selfish and I will gravitate to doing what's easiest, So there's a desperation for me to draw near to Christ because I want to live a life that honors him and glorifies him. Here's the second thing we need to do. We need to be so careful on what we make majors. We need to be so careful on what we make majors. And listen, I need you to hear me right now. I am not minimizing differences in convictions. I'm not, I I think convictions are really, really important. In fact, I'm very fearful for people who go through life without convictions. I think it's good to have convictions on life and politics and all of those things. Do me a favor, turn to your neighbor and just tell them he's not minimizing convictions, okay? Miss me with that email this week that I'm saying that nothing matters. That is not what I am saying. Here's what I am saying though. I'm saying we need to guard against making every difference A major, right? There are people in this church who hold deep convictions on alcohol on on both sides. Some believe it is absolutely wrong, should be stayed away from. Some are like, no, I have liberty in Christ to enjoy alcohol. And, And here's the thing, that is not something to make a major. It is a Christian wisdom issue. We can disagree on those things and be in community and relationship and love one another. That should not be something we're divisive over, we have differences in this room on theology. There are people in our church who have been a part of our church for 10 years who fundamentally disagree with our position on baptism. They're like, I think you're wrong, but it's not a major and I'm not gonna break community over it because the form by which you do ma- baptism, it's not something to break unity over. It. And I love this church and I love that you love God's word and I want to be a part of it. Um, here's one. I remember a couple weeks ago in Ephesians 1, I was preaching on the issue of predestination You guys remember that? Remember what I said? I'm like, listen, people have disagreed on this for 2,000 years. This is not something to fight about. You want to know why I said that? Because I knew y'all were going to go to small group and fight about it. (laughs) And guess what happened? Y'all went to small group and fought about it. You didn't even listen, right? Like, listen, I highly doubt that the problem was solved in your small group, right? It's been going on for 2,000 years, Have convictions, have beliefs about it, but it's not something to break relationship over. It's not a major. There's differences on schooling, politics, parenting, all sorts of things. It's not wrong to have convictions on these things, but when you elevate them to a point where I can't be in relationship with you unless you agree with me and see eye to eye with me, we have made it a major. And unfortunately, this attitude and growing hostility has been a growing trend in the American church in the last few years. Ed Stetzer, he's a professor at Wheaton College, and he's one of the nation's leading missiologists. And what a missiologist is, he looks at the macro trends of what's happening in the church in America across all denominational lines. He takes a big picture look at what's going on in the church. And here's what he says has happened in the church since the pandemic started. He calls it the great sort. He says this, Huge number of people have moved from church to church for reasons only tangentially related to the pandemic. For example, some people left their church because their church wore masks. Others left their church because their church did not wear masks. They sorted themselves into churches that followed their view of masking. Some people left churches because they heard the name George Floyd. Others because they did not hear his name. Some people left churches because the Sunday after the U.S. presidential election, the pastor prayed for former Vice President Joe Biden. Others left churches because the pastor didn't pray for President Biden. This is heartbreaking on many levels, but certainly one of the more lamentable realities is that people left their church, churches that they've been members at for years or even decades over either minor disagreements or major political differences. What he says is, is in the past few years, churches have elevated social and political and pandemic issues, and we've made them all majors. And we said that our affiliation to church, it's not about doctrine. It's not about theology. It's not about unity. It's not about worship. It's you need to agree with me on these social issues, or I can't be in relationship and worship with you. And Honestly, when I see what Ed Stetzer says, and then I hold up Ephesians two, and what Paul calls us to be being built together into one, people that were so different and disagreed on so many things, and he calls them to unity, I don't think we have honored the Lord well in this as an American church. And here's the thing, there are for sure majors. Like there are things that you can't concede on and unity can't cover. Like here's one the authority of God's word, right? That's a non-negotiable, right? If you and I disagree on whether God's word is true or not, how are we going to live in a Christian discipleship relationship together? We don't have the same standard of truth. We can't even hold each other accountable. That is a major. The person and work of Jesus Christ is a major. If you don't believe that Jesus was fully God, fully man, died on the cross for our sin, rose again, defeated sin and death, is ruling and reigning in heaven now, that's going to be a major stumbling block for relationship in this church because that is something we hold as a major. The fact that the Lord is returning someday, that's a major, like there are majors, but there are way more minors than there are majors. And if we're going to honor Christ and pursue unity, we're going to have to lead with patience, humility, and grace in our disagreements over the minors. Here's the third thing we need. We need to fight against fragility. We need to fight against being so fragile. We live in a culture that tells us more and more just to block or cancel the people who disagree with us. And we need to reject that narrative Um, There are people in Mary and I's life who we are close with who we disagree on a ton of stuff with. We disagree on the vaccines, we disagree on political issues, we disagree on parenting. And can I tell you a secret? It's okay. Like, we survive. We still love each other. We still hang out. We discuss those disagreements. We tease each other about those disagreements. And guess what? We are still fiercely loyal and committed to one another because those things don't trump what Christ has done for us. And they love the Lord and we love the Lord. And we are trying to honor him together. And our unity in Christ is not going to allow these secondary things to dent our relationship. Like, listen, people are going to disagree with you. That's part of living life. People are going to vote differently than you. People are going to have different convictions. The call is to do whatever we can to pursue unity and only draw firm lines on the majors. Um, There's a couple of phrases I think that we can reclaim. Here's one. Um, I love you and I think you're wrong. That's an okay thing to say. And it's okay to be told wrong. You're not going to explode into a million pieces. Here's another really good phrase we can reclaim. Help me understand Like, how do you get there? Because I'm over here, and and I'm listening, I'm trying to understand, and and, and I want to be humble and and understand that that you probably have put thought behind your position. And think about it. If we're only ever engaging with like-minded people, how are we ever going to have a witness for Christ? Like, unbelievers, by definition, they disagree with us on our hope for salvation, They disagree with us on Christianity. And if we want to love them well and explain to them the source of our hope and our life, we're gonna have to be okay with being told that people think we're crazy sometimes and they don't agree. It's good for our hearts and minds and witness to lovingly engage with people who we disagree with and model a spirit-empowered, Christ-like love that transcends our differences. This is exactly what Paul is calling the church to in Ephesians 2. And then here's the last thing we need to do we need to rightly feel the weight of our calling. We need to rightly feel the weight of our calling. In John 17, right before Jesus, right as he's ending his earthly ministry, he takes time and John records a prayer that he gives for his disciples and all of the disciples that are going to follow the disciples. He's praying for us. And look how he prays for us in John 17. He says this, he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Isn't it amazing that what is on Jesus' heart as he is ending his ministry is our unity? He actually says, the way the world is going to know that they're my people and that I have come to bring hope in life is in how the church will choose to love each other despite their differences and how they fight for unity. And that happened in the early church and it caused a movement that changed the world forever. Listen, it's not easy. It will take patience, kindness, and grace You're not going to do it perfectly, and you're probably not going to be treated perfectly in the process. That's part of dealing with people who are unfortunately not the finished product yet and still sinful. But this is what we've been called to in Christ. And church, as we close, here's what I want to say. Um, I'm actually really hopeful this morning. I don't come to this passage defeated. I come really, really hopeful, and here's why. Um, because I think the Lord has been good to really open our eyes up to what's been bubbling under the surface for years and years and years and years. And and for whatever reason, the hostility we've seen in culture and in the church over the last few years has been eye-opening. And when I talk to you, when I talk to people, here's what they say. They say, I hate it and we have to do better. And we have to find our identity in Christ and choose to once again, make the main things, the main things and model Christ's love and forgiveness and patience in the disagreements. I think the soil is ripe for us to get this right. And by the way, isn't that exactly what the world is looking for and what the world needs? like church, hear me. I am so confident and convinced that the message and way of Jesus is exactly what our entire world is looking for. Only in the message of the gospel, are we told that we are created by God, that our life has intrinsic value, that we matter, that we're known and that we're loved. Only in the Christian worldview, in the gospel, do we have an answer for the reality of brokenness. That even though God created everything and said it was good, it's our sin, our rebellion, our shaking our fists at God, which is why we live in a broken world today. But God didn't leave us to ourselves. That he came, that he forgave, that he engaged, and he sent himself to die to pay the penalty that we deserve so that we might be reconciled both to God and to one another. And that we have a future that ends with joy and life and love. This is what everyone is looking for, but this is only going to be a light in our culture if we choose to live differently. If we adopt the culture of our age, which says, no, 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 you've got to see everything eye to eye with me and if you disagree with me, I want nothing to do with you. We are minimizing the power of the very gospel we hold to. So here's what I wanna do right now. I'm just gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And if you just could bear with me for a second, pretend as much as you could, like you and I were just having a conversation face-to-face right now. I wanna be as pastoral to you individually as I can. And I just wanna ask you this question. Who in your heart are you bearing hostility towards? Maybe it's a certain individual, maybe it's a, Group of people? Maybe it's just the world in general. Who are you bearing hostility towards? And then, can I ask you this question? If Jesus were interacting with that person right now, how would he interact with them? How would he engage with that person or that group of people? Would he shake his fist? Would he condemn? Would he tell them how awful they were? Or would he love? Would he serve? Would he be quick to forgive? If we want to be people who are followers of Jesus, that means we've got to follow Jesus even in the people that can be difficult to love or who our pride and our sin would want us to be hostile towards. What are things in your life that you have made majors that maybe the Holy Spirit might be revealing you to aren't exactly majors? Are there relationships that need to be restored? I want you to wrestle with the Holy Spirit in these things right now. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for um, these people. I thank you for your word, God. I thank you for um, a hard call. And God, I'm thankful for the testimony of the Jews and Gentiles in the early church, that they were able to love one another and to move past very real convictions and differences and to shine a light for your kingdom. We want to do the same, God, would you help us? Would you do a miraculous work in relationships in this church? May we be a church that is defined by our love for Jesus and for love, our love for one another, so that the world may know that you sent Jesus to be the hope of the world. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.